Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Joining us, Elizabeth Norton. Hi. Hi. Oh, hi. I was just, hi. And, uh, well, we're so glad that you joined us and you're calling in all the way from the UK. And um, um, you're covering an area that we love a lot. And that's the uh, monarchy. And, of course, we're talking about the Tudors um, tonight. Um, first first of all, with yourself, how did you get involved in this sort of uh, research? Like, what led you to start writing about um, these subjects? It's always been a period that I've been fascinated with. Um, the Tudor period, it's, it's the first time that we've really got the sources to look in detail at individual people. We can know something about what they were thinking in a way that we don't have in earlier periods. So it's it's fascinating. Um, I came from an archaeology background, historical archaeology, and then moved across to history. So I'm interested in sort of the material culture for life and what, what sort of exists. And that moved me into the Tudor period, and it's just such a fascinating time. That, that's just uh, it's amazing. When did you start writing? Um, it's probably about 10 years ago now. Um, I, yeah, my first book came out probably, it was probably about 10 years ago. Um, that was on notorious medieval queens, which was, and actually took them to the Tudor period. And that was just fascinating to research because it's all the sort of historical bad women, really. Yeah. <laughs> they could keep writing those now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so now you, you, so you're really, you're really into the historical part and, uh, was there any particular reason that that it's been uh, so far? Like what I'm saying is, do you think you'll ever change what you write about? 
uh, get outside of what you're doing now and start writing into other areas? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I've, I've written, I've gone back into the medieval period a few times, but um, the Tudors are just fascinating. There are so many big personalities. There's, of course, Anne Boleyn, the yeah. second wife of Henry VIII. There's Henry VIII himself, Elizabeth I. It's just full of big personalities and just absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm, there is so much to explore. Right. How do you find it when you're researching? Because it's all kind of past and at one thing, so it's at a distance. But it's also you've got to deal with um, people's own bias. And when you're trying to research someone that's been, um, you know, a, a king or a queen or in the in the monarchy of somehow, isn't it a little guarded to find any real information? It can be tricky. Um, I like to go back to the original sources, so the actual manuscripts themselves, because they can tell you a great deal. So, um, for example, I was recently researching Thomas Seymour, who was an uncle of King Edward VI, Henry VIII's son. And, I mean, going back to the originals of his letters, you can actually look at his handwriting. So, towards the end of his life, he was in the Tower of London, and his handwriting just goes to pieces, and so he's, he's absolutely terrified. So, you can learn, you can learn a lot by looking at the actual documents that they wrote. Um, you can also get an insight into them. Um, letters tend to be quite stylized in the period, so you have to bear in mind that they're writing in a particular way. Often other sources contradict what you've read, so it, it's, it's difficult. You have, to, you have to be aware that there's bias, and, of course, that people are human. Um, they saw themselves in a particular way, and that's how they wanted to present themselves. So you're working with a potentially quite skewed lot of material. But, I mean, that's part of the fun in researching and interpreting and trying to work out just what happened and what people were doing and what they were thinking. Do you ever have any feedback that's kind of not necessarily, it's a little bit more negative than positive about the writings? Is there people that want to see their favorite emperor, I guess, <laughs> in a certain light? And if something comes out that necessarily isn't so you know, um, so pretty about something or some person and you write about it, does that sort of, do people take offense? Absolutely. Um, the people who are alive to 500 years ago are still highly relevant today. Um, the most obvious figure is Anne Boleyn. Um, she, I mean, she almost has a fan club today. She's, she is, she's incredibly polarizing. She's, people love her or they hate her. And it, it was always the way with Anne Boleyn back in the 16th century she polarized opinions and it's still going on today. So, yeah, I mean, if you write something about Anne Boleyn that's not favorable, you're, you're going to upset people. Equally, if you write a very favorable picture of her, you, you upset people who see her as um, a sort of a she-devil who destroyed Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon. So it's, it's difficult. I just, I tend to, I try to ignore it and just look at how I see them and how the, the sources speak to me about what they were doing and how I present them. And I, but it's, yeah, of course, of course you upset people, but the whole of, I mean, history is all about research and debate and interpretation. So in some ways it's great that we can still have a debate about these characters that lived 500 years ago. And this is a sort of a twisted angle here, but you know, there's so many uh, stories of um, Anne Boleyn and her ghost still haunting and you doing all the research and have traveled and you've been to a lot of the castles and I'm, I'm sure you've been everywhere you need it. H have you ever come across any of those situations where they talk about? 
Um, I mean, there are certainly a number of stories relating to Anne Boleyn's ghost and some other Tudor figures. Um, I've, I've not come across anything directly myself. Um, my grandfather, who died years ago, used to tell a story. He worked for the Department of Ancient Monuments um, in the war. And he apparently had a friend who was locking up at Hampton Court one night. He was working at Hampton Court and claimed that the ghost of a Tudor lady walked through him on the stairs. So he always thought that was Anne Boleyn, apparently. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's fascinating. Um, I believe Anne Boleyn is supposed to um, appear at Blickling, her birthplace, on the anniversary of her execution. Um, there are also, I was, I was told recently about a ghost story connected with Lambeth Palace that's supposed to be Anne Boleyn. So I don't know. I, it's, it's fascinating. Um, there are certainly a lot of stories. Yeah. I was just wondering if you ever felt anything like when you were around, did you do you feel a difference in the place that you're in? I, I mean, I guess you it's kind of pre precognitive. You already sort of know what the history is when you're there. So what's happened is in your mind. But I was just wondering if if you've ever picked up, as you would say, vibes or feelings from certain areas that seem to have, you know, weird feelings like ghostly. Hmm. Not really, to be honest. I'm no. I'm not very sensitive. <laughs> no, that's that's um, good. I like I, I just like to I just like to hear from people that um, who are just out there researching, doing a book mm. like yourself, or doing things, and they go to these places. And how is it for you? Like, do you go and you kind of feel wow, like someone's watching you? Or <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly I get a sense of presence in that. You know, this is a, you know, if I go to somewhere where the character I'm researching lived and and moved i you know i get a sense of them being there in some ways but um no i'm afraid that i don't particularly get vibes that they're they're watching me or there i'd like to i'd like to very much but sadly no oh that's too bad <laughs> yeah, I know, it's a shame. i'm sure no i'm sure it's better for you but <laughs> i probably be scared with this actually yeah. <laughs> no so um now on your latest book now it's just came out in the uk and it'll be coming out here in january and um, so now, now tell us about that. Like what, 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 what is the initial, what is the book about? So the book is called The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor. Um, and it focuses on Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn's daughter, Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth. It's set just, it begins at Henry VIII's death when Elizabeth is, is 13 years old. And it follows her up until 1549. And it's what it is, it's, it's looking at a very specific incident in her life. When Henry VIII died, she was left an orphan. She was too young, really, to set up her own household. So she went to live with her stepmother, Catherine Parr. Catherine very rapidly remarried Thomas Seymour, who was the uncle of the new king, Edward VI. What Catherine didn't know was that Thomas had already proposed marriage to Elizabeth, who turned him down. And very soon after she joined the household, and Thomas joined the household, he began acting in a very inappropriate way. Um, there are records of him coming into her bedroom in the morning and tickling her in bed um, and looking as though he was going to come in there with her. He would appear, and this is a quote, bare-legged and in his slippers and would come into her room. One stage he, he, he would slap her and spank her playfully. At one stage the queen was holding her in the garden while he pulled out his dagger and slashed her dress. So there's a lot of very inappropriate behaviour which I've been looking at in great detail, it eventually came to a head when Catherine Parr found the pair embracing and she sent Elizabeth away. 
um, the book then, Catherine Parr then died not long afterwards, and then the book looks at the fall of Thomas Seymour because he basically then turned his attentions to Elizabeth, this time with a view to marrying her. So he eventually lost his head. Elizabeth was in considerable danger for a period but survived. And, I mean, the argument of the book is that this all went a long way to creating the image of the Virgin Queen. It was It was just another proof to Elizabeth that marriage could be dangerous and costly. So that's that's the book. And yeah, I'm hoping that it will prove popular. And it's, it was fascinating to do such a short period of research and such a detailed amount of research. Yeah. How long does something like that take you? Like like to do all the research and put all that together? Uh, what, what, was, what was the timing on all that? It takes about 18 months in total. So um, it's probably about roughly just under a year for researching and then just over six months for actually writing. Was there anything that really happened that you found in your research that sort of surprised you? Sort of like, you know, you kind of have something in your mind, the framework, you kind of know some of the story, you're going in and were, were there some big surprises for you? Um, yeah, so there were a number of surprises. Um, I think for me the biggest surprise was just how willingly Princess Elizabeth seems to have taken Thomas Seymour's suit after Catherine died. Um, I had sort of always assumed it was quite a one-sided relationship, really. And actually, in my reading of the sources, actually, I and you'll, you'll see in my book that I, I think Elizabeth was actually quite a willing participant, at least in the marriage negotiations after Catherine's death. So that surprised me a great deal. There's also... Um, there were rumours of a baby being born, and there's a chapter devoted to that in the book. And um, I'm not going to give away the conclusion, but I mean, certainly it was there was a lot of surprising information there, and it was it was great to really dig deep at the story and pick away at what people were saying and what actually happened. And so, did you come up with a different kind of feeling on Elizabeth than you had before you went through the book and the research? I, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I'm guilty of it, and I'm sure other people are, of viewing Elizabeth I from the perspective of this great queen, when actually in 1547 and 1548, Elizabeth was a teenage princess. Um, she had, at that stage, she had very little hope of the throne. Her brother was young and healthy and gave every indication that he would grow up and marry and have children. She, then, she also had an elder sister, Mary, who could, might well have married and had children. So at that stage, Elizabeth was very unlikely to be queen. It was not something that she was looking for. So it was, it was interesting to take her at that sort of moment in her life and look at what she was thinking, what she was feeling. Yeah, yeah, it would have been very interesting. Do you, what do you think she had in mind for her life then? I think she was looking for marriage, to be honest. Uh, her future really was either as a great noblewoman in England, probably married to a nobleman, or possibly a foreign marriage for diplomatic reasons. And because of the way her parents' marriage ended and the fact that her father declared her illegitimate, the chances of her making a very good foreign marriage weren't that high. So really, I think she had a view to being a great nobleman's wife to be honest, and Thomas Seymour was the greatest man unmarried in England, as her governess told her after Catherine Parr died. Right. And so, but do you think that it was still would have been, 
I mean, there's still quite the religious problem in the fact of, um, uh, you know, the way she was made illegitimate was really about the, the, the church, the way he made the Church of England, that whole setup. Do you think she still would have had a good chance at it, do you, you know, marrying a nobleman? Um, yeah, she was, she was incredibly eligible. The problem was that the council, the, the king's council had to consent to her marriage. And they were unlikely to do that while the king was a minor. But when the, when the king was an adult, it's quite likely he would have permitted her to marry. So, yeah, I think that that's no problem. She, it was a problem abroad because a lot of the princes of Europe thought that she was illegitimate. And so that was quite a big problem. It wasn't insurmountable. She did get offers from foreign princes, but they tended to be more minor. So she probably wasn't going to end up being queen of France, for example. Right. Right, right. And so, how did that play on her mentally? Was this like this? Was this really tough? Um, um, yeah, absolutely. She had a. I mean, she had a very troubled childhood in general. Elizabeth. Her mother was executed when she was two. She was declared illegitimate. She would have been very aware of what had happened to her mother. And there were in the period it was believed that a woman who was um, who was guilty of, sort of adultery and, and impropriety, could pass that on to her children. So there were many that would believe that Elizabeth, as the daughter of such a mother, could be capable of, of sexual impropriety. And so she was she was looked at with suspicion in some respect. Her half-sister, Princess Mary, in fact, later claimed that she thought Elizabeth had the look of Smeaton about her. And Smeaton was one of the men rumoured to have been Anne Boleyn's lover. So she was basically claiming that she wasn't Henry VIII's daughter at all. So this all had a huge effect on Elizabeth. Um, I think it made her fiercely protective of her royal status and her father's memory because, simply because she wanted to prove to the world that she was royal, she was his daughter. And so she was proud of her, of her rank and her status. How did her relationship with her father, Henry, actually go I mean it was such like did, did they have much of one they didn't have very much direct contact um, once she was declared illegitimate and her mother was dead he in fact um, didn't bother to send her any new clothes for quite some time there's a letter from her governess complaining that she's got nothing to wear because she's outgrown them as she grew up she had a bit more contact she was present at Catherine Parr and Henry VIII's wedding in 1543 but she was still young and the contact was quite indirect. She sent him a New Year's gift as a teenager, which she, she'd written herself. It was a translation work. So she was obviously fond of him and in awe of him. But I think they didn't have the sort of father-daughter relationship that we would, we would sort of expect today. But again, equally, he didn't really have that relationship with any of his children. He was a distant parent, as Tudor kings and queens were. Children were sent away to their own households at an early age. But so the direct contact wasn't necessarily there, but she was very much aware of who her father was and was proud of that. Wow. And so that carried on, I would suppose, to her, her sister as well, like Mary, who was quite opposite, I would guess. Um, they didn't have much of a relationship either, and they probably felt a little competition. Yeah, I think. The relationship between Mary and Elizabeth was just hugely complicated. Obviously, Mary was the daughter of Henry VIII's first wife, who was put aside when Mary was a teenager so that Henry could marry Anne Boleyn. Um, for Mary, this was hugely traumatic. She sided with her mother in the divorce, 
and was later forced by Henry to, to, to admit that her parents had never been married and that she was illegitimate, something that deeply upset her. In spite of that, she actually was very kind to Elizabeth when Elizabeth was young. Um, after Anne Boleyn's death, Mary wrote a letter talking about what a, what a good child she was and how sweet she was. She was very interested in her, but it was difficult as Elizabeth grew up and came to resemble Anne Boleyn more. It was difficult for Mary. I think, I mean, the problem was Mary was almost 20 years older than her sister. She was in her late tween, teens when she was born. And actually, the contrast between them must have been quite stark. When Mary became queen, she was in her late 30s. Elizabeth was still only 20. So the contrast must have been uncomfortable for the queen. And then, of course, there was the religious difference. Mary was Catholic. Elizabeth was Protestant. Elizabeth conformed during Mary's reign, but she didn't do so very willingly. She went to mass complaining loudly that her stomach hurt and that she was ill, something that displeased the queen. So it was a difficult relationship, and it does stem from their childhood and the fact of who their mothers were. Mary didn't last very long as the Queen either, didn't she? Um, wasn't she insane or something? Yeah, Mary was Queen for five years. She actually died of the flu, um, which actually I think most people were quite glad about in England, to be honest. Um, Mary was quite an unfortunate character. She She came to the throne on a wave of popular support. Um, her brother Edward had appointed the Protestant Jane Grey as heir, but Mary was swept to power really by a popular movement. So she always believed that was God's work and that it was God's plan that she'd be queen. For her, that meant returning England to the Catholic Church. By that stage, a lot of people in England were Protestant, and so she began burning them. Um, many people were burned during her reign, which didn't look good for her, hasn't done well for her reputation. She's known as Bloody Mary. She was also highly disappointed. Um, she married Philip of Spain but failed to have a child and eventually had to appoint Elizabeth as her successor, something that she hated. So she's not necessarily insane, but she was certainly an incompetent ruler and one that didn't preside over a very happy period. Well, why was she not just put in? Why Why did Edward appoint uh Lady Jane, because Edward was quite young when he died, wasn't he? He was still a teenager, wasn't he? He was. He was 15. Um, he actually, he wrote, when he knew he was dying, he wrote a device for the succession where he declared that his two sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, were illegitimate and couldn't inherit and passed the throne instead to Jane Grey, who was the daughter of his first cousin, Francis Brandon. And the main reason for that is that she was Protestant. And um, Edward was a, was an incredibly fervent Protestant, even in spite of his young age, and was very, very worried about the prospect of Mary succeeding. He couldn't choose Elizabeth over Mary. That wasn't possible. So he dropped both from the succession and planted Mary, um, Jane in there instead. It was probably helped by the fact that his uh, the head of his council, the Duke of Northumberland, was Jane's father-in-law. So he was probably also pushing for Jane's succession, but the driving force seems to have been Edward, and it was a religious motive. Hmm. And and Lady Jane was just uh, beheaded. She actually never got crowned, did she? No, no, she was queen technically for nine days. She was declared queen and taken to the tower, where she got to try on the crown, but she was never crowned. Um, she 
she was sitting eating dinner one day in the tower when the cloth of estate, which was which was sort of a, a basically a canopy that would be over the monarch, was torn down, and she was sent down to the to the prison part of the tower. Wow. And and so one thing that um, now a lot of people there's just talking about beheading royalty, <laughs> um, but uh, there's uh, I hear a lot of different stories and being there now when you're in the Tower of London and you're at the area where the the uh, royalty was being beheaded. Yeah. Now, now I've heard truthfully that they never got beheaded there. That all all royalties like as in king or queen, like uh, like Jane, would be beheaded inside. That's right. Oh, so, okay. yeah. So, so well, they, no, they were inside the tower. So, what it is is most executions happened on Tower Green, which is outside the walls of the tower, and there would be a huge crowd of people. There would be jeering and shouting, and it's a, it's a horrible place to die. You, it was very, very public. A very, very select few, and that included Jane Grey, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's fifth wife, were executed inside the walls of the Tower of London on Tower Green. So that was much more private because they could control who came in and who came out of the tower and basically shut the gates. So it was much, much better to be executed there, but very few people were. But so so there was a separate so, so it wasn't broad like everybody couldn't because, you know, on television shows and stuff, they show like Anne Boleyn's being beheaded and they, you know, put her out there and they make a big spectacle and everybody's throwing things and saying things and they cut her head off. That really didn't happen. No, I mean, there was a big crowd, but it was a, it was an invited audience. The king's illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, was there, as were much of his council and the nobility. Foreigners were expressly excluded. They weren't to be admitted. Um, the common people wouldn't have been allowed in. So there was a crowd, but it was it was an invited crowd. It was the people who were there to witness the death. So there wouldn't have been a baying crowd. Right. And it would have been inside. So it was out. It was inside the walls of the tower. It was right. still outside. In it was okay. on um, a patch of grass inside the tower. Okay. So, but so it was done. It was done. But it was done. Sa- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It wasn't just an open open door policy <laughs> no not at all and it would be on a scaffold that was built specifically for that execution oh okay they actually um handmade <laughs> that's right so you they would be while you were locked in the tower you would hear the carpenters working to build the scaffold for you to die well that's very polite that's <laughs> yes yes so horrible <laughs> <laughs> well, that's Lovely. No, it's just I've heard stories on that. We were talking about beheading, and I just wasn't sure what what was what there because you see, you know, of course, television and movies always have that. Uh, you know, they're, yeah. they they want to make it entertainment, so of course they do. Yeah, I mean, actually, there was there's one royal beheading I can think of that was indoors, and that was Mary Queen of Scots at Fotheringay Castle. That was in the Great Hall. Oh, okay. But in the main, they were outside, but in within the Tower of London. But the Mary Queen of Scots didn't just didn't rank, or she just she wasn't in London. Yeah. So she was never in the tower. She was kept prisoner at Fotheringay, oh, and right. her execution was very hurried and quite secret. So right. that I suspect is why it was indoors. Right, right. So now with Elizabeth here. So did she, um, when it happened and she became queen? I mean, at the, the initial turnover too, like the changeover. Um, was she worried for her life? Um, absolutely. Um, she was, she was partly, she was an unknown quantity, but she was also a Protestant. She was widely known to be Protestant. So there were, there were dangers. She was certainly later in life. She was very paranoid about assassination, but there was, there were always dangers. But of course, there was actually quite a lot that could kill you in Tudor England. Um, Elizabeth actually did nearly die in 1562 when she'd been queen for four years, but she nearly died of smallpox rather than any assassination attempt. And, and so, who, who would who would have taken the role from her at the beginning if she would have died? People weren't sure. Legally, the heir to the throne was Catherine Grey, Jane Grey's sister, and that came from Henry VIII's will. By the third act of succession, which Henry VIII passed, he basically said that he could appoint whoever whomever he wanted to be his successor. Then in his will, he, he left the throne to his three children in turn and then to the descendants of his younger sister, Mary, rather than his elder sister, Margaret, who were Mary, Queen of Scots and the Scottish line. So legally, the heir was Catherine Grey, who was the senior descendant of his younger sister. By the rules of hereditary, the heir was Mary, Queen of Scots. 
um, who was then in France in 1562. So it was, um, it was difficult. No one was quite sure. Um, a lot of the count, Elizabeth's council wanted the Earl of Huntingdon, who was much more distantly related, but was male. So they wanted a king. So it was, it was very up in the air. It probably would have been Catherine Grey, but it, it may not have been. So the fact, the fear of Elizabeth dying was enormous for her council. What's there, what was there a real fear of uh, of England kind of losing its power or strength by not having a man? Is that yeah, 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 absolutely. Before the 16th century, there'd never been an effective ruling queen. The only example in in England, anyway, the only example in England was the Empress Matilda, who was the only living legitimate child of King Henry I in the 12th century. He named her his heir. Um, but when he died, his nephew Stephen claimed the crown, and that ushered in nearly 20 years of civil war as Stephen and Matilda fought for the crown. Matilda actually nearly won it. She had Stephen imprisoned and went to London for her coronation, but was driven out by the people. And so it, was, it wasn't a happy precedent. In the 15th century, most people agreed that the true heir to the throne was Elizabeth of York, but no one was prepared to support her. She was the mother of Henry VIII by marrying Henry VII. So it was it was a benefit to Henry VIII to have her as his mother because she had a very strong claim to the throne. But no one, no one thought that she could be queen herself. So the idea of a queen ruling was actually quite frightening for Henry VIII and a lot of people because people were worried it would lead to civil war. There was also the danger that the husband of a queen became a king. Um, when Mary I married Philip of Spain, he became King Philip of England. Um, it didn't last. When she died, he, he stopped being King of England. But there was always a danger that you would end up with a foreign king and lose your independence. Right, right. And so, so what, what was with Elizabeth here now? Now, some of the uh, the names like the Virgin Queen uh, were there popular were they popular sayings back at the time when she was ruling or yes. oh they were so what was kind yes, of, absolutely. what was the reasoning behind something let's say like the virgin queen like what was that it's Just, very much a part of elizabeth's myth um very soon after she became queen she was petitioned by parliament to marry and she declared that she wanted to remain a virgin for her life and that she wouldn't and it actually didn't cause much of a stir and to be honest it was because nobody believed her Nobody thought it was possible for a queen to remain unmarried and to rule alone. But it was very much part of the myth and the, um, the, it was, you know, what Elizabeth was trying to build up for herself, her persona, her public persona. She made a big thing about her virginity and the fact that she was a virgin queen and so did writers in her reign. It was very important and it was, it's very much part of her myth that she was building. And, and so, I'm just trying to think what the, what the myth was trying to accomplish, is to make her stronger as a female? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in part, she would have been very aware that were she to marry, she would lose a great deal of her power because the husband of queen was king. So she would go from being, she said that she would have but one mistress and no master in, in England. And it, and it was a good point because if she married, she would, revert somewhat to being a queen consort. She'd be a little more important than a queen consort, but she wouldn't be ruling alone anymore. So on a personal level, it was not something that she welcomed. But also, as the Virgin Queen, she could set herself apart from other women. 
and appeared different to other women. It was a, it was an age where women were considered inferior to men. So she, by ruling independently and as his virgin queen, a sort of mythological figure, she could set herself apart. It also she used an analogy that she was married to her country, which again was something that she could do as an unmarried queen. And and so now that is. What is the difference then now as compared to, because I mean, when Queen Elizabeth II hears in and she's been married to a man, she still holds the leadership as the queen. Her husband is the king, but not really. That's, um, he's not the king. He, well, um, he's, but that, that's what I mean. Like, it, it, Could you kind of explain what the difference is? I mean, because like she married someone, Prince Philip, and... Um, I'm just I'm not sure what the difference is between that and then. It's simply that times have changed. So back in the 16th century and in the medieval period before it, it was believed that a man would become king through his wife, so he would take the crown matrimonial. Henry VII, in fact, Elizabeth's grandfather, was very worried that if he married Elizabeth of York, who was the daughter of Edward IV, before he was crowned king, it would look as though he had the crown matrimonial. He was a king by courtesy. It was gen- it was widely accepted that the husband of a king of a queen became a king. That has changed considerably over time. And in fact, in the early 18th century, there was a, a reigning queen called Queen Anne in England, and she was married, but he didn't become king. So it had changed before that point. But in the Tudor period, it was it was assumed that a woman couldn't rule alone. Wow. It's, it's, times have changed uh, very much <laughs> <laughs> wow and so did you do you think that elizabeth had a long-term goal of i mean it sounds to me like um you know the virgin queen concept and the idea of doing this is kind of like in her mind she'll never get married then she'll never have children was that kind of really her long-term goal yeah no i think it was i think elizabeth's long-term goal was to hold the throne and to die naturally as Queen of England. That was her long-term goal. Um, It would have been better for her dynasty if she had married and had children, and that the Tudor dynasty could have continued. But when a queen in the 16th century had a son, she actually produced a rival. Um, You can see it in the case of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots, had been Queen of Scotland since she was a baby. She had a baby, she had a son, and immediately people's attention turned towards him because most people wanted a king rather than a queen. So if you were a queen who had a son, you had a you had an incredibly powerful rival. There would certainly have been calls for Elizabeth, if she had a, a son by the time he became an adult, for her to um, pass on authority to him because people wanted a king. Women could transmit a claim to the throne, but it was still quite a new idea that they actually would reign themselves. Wow. And so how did she plan on changing England? Um, Her most immediate change was she wanted to turn England back to the Protestant church. Um, She'd conformed to Catholicism under Mary's reign, but most people knew that she was Protestant. In fact, it was difficult for her to find a bishop to crown her at her coronation because it was widely believed that she was a heretic from the Catholic point of view. So, and um, she was certainly Protestant, but 
what Elizabeth did with her religious settlement was very clever because she trod a middle line. So although she was it's Protestant and a Protestant church, it wasn't as radically Protestant as the church of her half-brother. So she actually did a very clever settlement and one that endures today. And it, it's a very pragmatic settlement and it, it's probably her finest achievement. And it was the first thing she wanted to do. And so I'm just trying to, I'm trying to encapsulate the, the whole, do you think that she would have, like she lasted a really long time as the empress, emperor, the queen. Do you think she thought she had that long of time? Um, I mean, I, as I said, you could you can die at any point in Tudor right. England. There's lots that will carry you off. But so I mean, certainly I, I'm sure she was she was pleased. She lived to be nearly seventy and reigned for forty four years. So she had a lot of time. The last decade or so of her her reign was quite a troubled period. Um, she faced a rebellion by the Earl of Essex, um, which was designed to imprison her. She also had war in Ireland and in the Netherlands and there was high inflation and unemployment. So it was quite a difficult time. So her reign sort of divides into different sections. Um, had she died in 1588, which is about 15 years before she died, after the, the defeat of the Spanish Armada, um, certainly her contemporaries would have, would have viewed her as a, a very, very great queen. It was coloured slightly by the last decade of her reign, and by the time of her death, most people were looking forward to a new reign. But, I mean, it was an enormous achievement, and in living so long, she was able to um, bring a period of stability into England. Do you think she had a, a true, uh, true great love in her life? Yes, um, and that would be Robert Dudley. He was the son of the Duke of Northumberland, the man who put Jane Grey on the throne. Um, he and Elizabeth were both imprisoned in the Tower of London at the same time. She was imprisoned under her sister for a period. They were very, very close. Um, certainly, he had hopes that she would marry him. Unfortunately, he was married when she came to the throne, and his wife died not long afterwards in suspicious circumstances. She was found at the foot of a flight of stairs with a broken neck. Um, that basically meant that Elizabeth could never marry Robert Dudley, because it would be said that he had killed his wife to make room for her. Um, but he, all through her life, until his death in 1588, he was there for her, and she was very close to him. So I think he, if she could have married any man, he, she would have married him. Wow. Amazing uh, story. So now, in your book itself, in, in um, what, what exactly is, was the focus in your book? So the focus in the book is on the relationship between Elizabeth and Thomas Seymour, and it's looking at what was actually going on between them and what they both hoped to achieve by the relationship. So it, it, it divides quite nicely into two sections, really, before Catherine Parr's death and afterwards, when he became available to Elizabeth as a husband. So I really wanted to look at a moment in Elizabeth's life before she became the Virgin Queen and before she had any prospect of becoming a queen and see exactly what was going on and what she was thinking about and what she was planning. And it was, it was fascinating. Right. Now, Catherine Parr, for that, now she was the husband of Henry VIII. Or yes, the wife. that's right. She was his sixth wife. Yeah. And uh, Thomas Seymour was her brother? 
Um, he was the brother of Jane Seymour, Henry's third wife. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just tough for me to keep going. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I, I knew there was a relationship. So, so, and now, now, so Thomas Seymour was kind of, kind of uh, playing with Elizabeth from a very young age. Yes, yes, he yeah. was. She was 13 when her father died and when he joined the household that she was living in. Um, she was 14 for most of the period. Um, and turned 15 towards the end of his life. So, no, she was she was a teenager. Yeah. Um, from 14, she was technically marriageable, but he was considerably older than her. He was in his 40s. Right. And so, so what, did they just go out, hang out with each other then? Is that so? Uh, well, they were living <laughs> together. I mean, they were living together. He was, he was a sort of the stepfatherly role, but um, there was quite a lot going on in the household so there was um he was coming into her bedchamber in the morning to say good morning to her but it was it's all quite scandalous um there were reports of him climbing into the bed to tickle her in the morning and her having to hide to stop him getting to her um so it was it was quite there was quite a scandal but it was all quite hushed up until his actual fall a, a year or so later wow and so do you think she actually liked him Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, he was very charming, very handsome. Um, I, I think she did like him very much indeed. Years later, she was given a portrait of him when she was queen, and she hung it in one of her palaces. So it, it shows that she was thinking of him and remembered him. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, amazing. And so how did it end for Elizabeth, so for the people that don't know of? Um, so for the, uh, with regard to the Seymour scandal or Elizabeth in general? Well, actually, the Seymour scandal would be great. Yeah, well, um, Seymour was hugely jealous of his elder brother, Edward, the Duke of Somerset, who was the Lord Protector. So he was effectively regent for Edward VI. Thomas Seymour wanted to share that power and his brother wouldn't share it. So he continued to try and undermine his brother. Um, after Catherine Parr's death, he got he became more bold. He was negotiating a marriage with Elizabeth. At the same time, he was in league with a man who was counterfeiting coins at the Bristol Mint with a view to paying an army that he would use against his brother. Matters came to a head when this man, um, the, the coiner, William Sharrington, was arrested in January 1549. And I think that moved Thomas Seymour's plans forward. He had to act or risk arrest. And one night in the palace, the, the palace was awakened by the sound of a dog barking. When they went outside, they found the, the king's pet dog stabbed to death outside the door to his bedroom. And the guard said they'd seen Thomas Seymour lurking around the palace. So it was assumed that he tried to kidnap the king. The next day, he was sent to the Tower of London. In the tower, everything that had been going on with Elizabeth came out. She was interrogated. Her servants were imprisoned. And Thomas was interrogated. And eventually he was executed. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was quite lucky, I think. She was very closely interrogated, but she and her servants said very little and ultimately survived. Wow. Wow. So she had to live with that. Hmm. Absolutely. And, and so then um, what was next for her after, after that? That was uh, before she was uh, queen. Did they send her away or was she punished for that? Not particularly. She lost her governess, 
for a time. She, a new lady mistress was appointed for her, her who she didn't like. But no, she was she was gradually rehabilitated. She spent the rest of her brother's reign wearing sombre black and ensuring that she was a, an upstanding Protestant maiden. So she was she was she survived. She was rehabilitated after Edward's death. She appeared at her sister Mary's court, but the pair were not particularly friendly. There was a rebellion against Mary in 1554, and Elizabeth was implicated in it. That led to her being sent to the Tower of London herself, um, and she must have been in fear of her life. She was eventually released, but was never really on friendly terms with her sister. Eventually, her sister died, and she became queen. Wow. And so, and one thing, when she became queen, now, now she... Um did things quite differently isn't it didn't she uh change the way people looked isn't she the one that like uh changed the way a, a lady queen would be by, by by cutting her hair and the makeup and everything that's a bit of a that's a bit of a myth i'm afraid um she certainly as she got older she wore makeup and wigs but it was more it wasn't a deliberate policy it was more to continue to appear as useful as possible um there was a real there was a myth that she was ageless and that she remained as beautiful as she'd ever been when she was in her 60s. Um, I think there's quite a lot of poetic license there. She yeah. wore a great deal of white makeup to hide smallpox scars and wrinkles. Her teeth had mainly fallen out or turned black by that period because of sugar and her hair was largely gone, so she wore wigs. But it wasn't, it wasn't really a deliberate policy. It was more an attempt to continue looking useful. Right, right. And so overall, do you think she did a good good reign? I mean, as in things were well for the country? Yes. No, I think she was a very great queen. Um, she wasn't warlike. Um, she kept England out of foreign wars in the main until she was really forced into it. She presided over a very stable period when a 100 years before there had been civil war in England, the Wars of the Roses, which had caused huge turmoil and troubles. So it was a very stable period. It wasn't an, un, an unremitting success. There, were, there was inflation and unemployment towards the end of the reign. Um, most people were looking for a change by the time she died. But certainly, she was she was a very great queen and, and presided over a period of very a great period in English history. There was the defeat of the Spanish Armada, which was a huge invasion fleet sent by Spain, and that was repulsed. There was um, an upsurge in exploration in the reign, um, invention. There's a theatre, literature. So it's it's a golden age in English history, and she was very much at the helm. And and how did she finally pass? She died. She was um, she was 69 years old. She her her cousin Countess of Nottingham died, and Elizabeth became depressed. She then really just became ill. She had a sore throat that she couldn't shake off. Even to the end, though, she she remained defiant. She refused to go to bed, even though her doctor said that she should. And when one of her um, servants suggested she go to bed, she said, little man, who are you to tell the Queen of England what to do? Um, eventually, she went to bed and she lay there in silence until she died. She refused to name her successor to the end, something that she'd always refused to do because she was frightened that people would flock to the heir to the throne, leaving her. So... Yeah, she died. She died of old age, effectively. In that period, sixty-nine was elderly. It was a good age. Yeah, yeah, it's a good age now, even. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, who did she uh, name heir? 
Well, she didn't really name anyone, but by living so long, the problem really resolved itself because by a strict hereditary, the person with the best name to the throne was Mary, Queen of Scots' son, James. James is of Scotland. Um, he was the most high-ranking potential heir as well. He was a good Protestant on friendly terms with Elizabeth. So it was. It just wasn't very plausible that it would be anyone other than him. The only other candidates were his cousin, Arbella Stewart, who was a girl, and also Catherine Gray's sons, who were of dubious legitimacy. So really, James was the only candidate, and he was one that most people were very happy with. Right. So it all kind of worked out in the long run. It did, yeah. And it was to do with her living so long. I mean, she solved the problem effectively. Yeah. Yeah, it all sort of worked. So, so did you find did you find out that do you think she was a smart queen, a very intelligent person? Yes, yes, absolutely, highly intelligent. Um, she spoke a number of languages, was very, very intelligent, and an excellent political player. She knew exactly what was going on, and ruled her kingdom herself. Wow, it's amazing. So, what would you say overall about Queen Elizabeth? If you had to say, like, three words, what would they be? Uh, three words to describe Queen Elizabeth. I would say strong, a survivor, pragmatic. Oh, very good. <laughs> thank you. Well, excellent. Nice talking to you. And thank you very okay. much for doing the show. Yeah, no problem at all. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. This has been a production of the Z-Talk Radio Network. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.